Good morning. morning. Let's begin with prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are so in need of your grace and your presence and your spirit, and we're so thankful for Jesus. We ask that you would fill us with your your spirit and, and enlighten us, transform us, enable us to represent you faithfully in this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. All right, so our class today is Lesson 7 in the quarterly uh, Present Truth in Deuteronomy, and the title is Law and Grace, Law and Grace. And the, and the memory verse is Galatians 2.21. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Righteousness comes through the law, Christ died in vain. And then look at the first paragraph. It says, Christians of most denominations talk about law and grace and understand the relationship between the two. The law of God, the law is God's standard of holiness and righteousness, and violation of that law is sin. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness, 1 John 3, 4. Uh, and because we have all, and because we have all violated that law, but scripture has confined us all under sin, it's only God's grace that can save us, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Let me ask you this, uh, based on what they just said, because we violated that law, conf- scriptures can find us under sin. Which of the following statements do you think is true, or do you think they're both true? This is my statement, both of these. We have all violated God's law, and because of this, we are sinners. Or, we are all sinners, and because of this, we have all violated God's law. They're not the same, are they? No, they're not. And this is an important difference to make. It's a very important difference to make. Imposed law makes it about the deeds. You broke the law, therefore you are a sinner. It's your fault you broke the law. It's not actually reality on where we live. The reality is that all of us were in Adam when Adam broke the law. And we are born in sin and conceived in iniquity. We're born with a condition we didn't choose. And the symptoms of that condition are what the Bible calls sins. Without remedy... We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. So it's true that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. There's no question about that. But the reason is because we're born sinners, not because we were born sinless with perfect um, uh, humanity and then chose to rebel like Adam and Eve. No, that's, that's not our situation. Our own, our own ongoing sins then are the not the cause of our sinful state. They're the symptoms of our sinful state. But they do add to the damage. And if persisted in, will destroy us. They'll sear the conscience, harden the heart, warp the character, and eventually take us so out of harmony with God that, that no movement of the spirit of truth or love has any impact on us. So they're not without consequence, but it's not our fault that we were born in this state. So in Galatians, the law, what law is spoken of in Galatians? This was the question that divided the Adventist church in the 1888 General Conference. The primary division at the conference was over this question. They had other little things they were arguing, but this was the big one. And so, what, and so the, the issue, what, what law was Paul talking about that was added? The added law that was to lead us to Christ. The ceremonial sacrificial system or the moral law of the Ten Commandments? Jones and Wagner? took the position that it was the moral law that was being referred to by Paul that was added. 
Uh, G.I. Butler, who was president of the conference but was sick and could not attend, sent letters taking the position that it was the ceremonial law in Galatians that was added. And Butler's document became a book called The Law in Galatians. And Wagner wrote a book or a pamphlet that became a book called The Gospel in Galatians. And I think you can tell they both had a different emphasis on what they were seeing in the book of Galatians. Now, what would you say if I were to suggest that the Adventist church leadership, in choosing to reject Wagner's view, in siding with the uh, imperial view of law, rejecting design law stuff, that they obstructed the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the latter reign, and have contributed to to delaying the second coming of Christ. If I were to say that, would you say, that's a little overstated. That's a little over the top. That's uh, really kind of uh, exaggerating things. Well, I won't state that. I just put it out there for you to think about. I'm going to read something from Ellen White instead. <laughs> this is at a first selected message, it's 234, that she wrote this in the aftermath of the 1888 General Conference. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith, Galatians 3.24. In this scripture, the Holy Spirit, through the apostle, is speaking especially of the moral law. The moral law. What law was added, according to this author, supporting the Wagner view? The Ten Commandments were added. The moral law. The, not the design law, the principles upon which reality operate. No, no, no. The Ten Commandments as a codification of that law, specifically written for man in his sinful state. Adam and Eve, actually, in the Garden of Eden, did not need a law that says they should honor their mother. They didn't. They didn't need that. That didn't, didn't fit for them. This law was added for man in a sinful state, constructed based on the great principles of love to help diagnose and expose the sin problem and bring people to Christ. Continuing on with the quote, the law reveals sin to us and causes us to feel our need of Christ and to flee unto him for pardon and peace by exercising repentance towards God and faith toward our uh, Lord Jesus Christ. An unwillingness to yield up preconceived opinions and to accept this truth lay at the foundation of a large share of the opposition manifested at Minneapolis against the Lord's messenger message, the Lord's message through brothers Wagner and Jones. Do you still see this today? The process of people having a preconceived opinion so deeply embedded that they resist advancing light or changing in perspectives, uh, particularly about God's law. And they're unwilling to do this by adhering to law. They're going to be law keepers. They're going to be loyal to the law, which allows them to feel very conscientious and condemn those who are trying to undermine the law, which is exactly what happened in 1888. They accused Jones and Wagner of trying to undermine. It was very serious to them. You're trying to take away the commandments by suggesting it was added. It can't be. It's eternal. And this is what happens in the church still. The adherence to law, the imposed view of law, get very defensive. And they resist this idea that God's law is actually design law. But they do it 
by being law keepers, like the Pharisees who crucified Christ and wanted to keep the law and get him off the cross. Continue with the quote. By exciting that opposition, Satan succeeded in shutting away from our people in a great measure the special power of the Holy Spirit that God longed to impart to them. The enemy prevented them from obtaining that efficiency which might have been theirs in carrying the truth to the world as the apostles proclaimed it after the day of Pentecost. What empowered the apostles on the day of Pentecost? And what do we call that? Outpouring is called the early rain. And what is, uh, what is it that we are supposed to receive? But it was obstructed here. Wow. Continue on with the quote. And, and, and she says it could have been received if they would have simply been willing to accept advancing truth. But they weren't. And the spirit is the spirit of? Truth, yes. Think about the quote. The light, which is a metaphor for truth, the light that is to lighten the whole world with its glory was resisted. And by the action of our own brethren has been in a great degree kept away from the world. And I'm going to tell you, folks, the Adventist church has been blessed with a message. That is to lighten the world. And by our own brethren, we've been keeping it from the world. It's the message of the three angels. But hasn't the Adventist church been passionate about taking the message of the three angels to the world? Have we? Have we taken the eternal gospel of God's character to the world? Or have we taken the imperial legal uh, um, view of a punishing God who must kill you if you don't pay him with the blood of an innocent human sacrifice? That is not the gospel. That's paganism. The law, this continuing on, just get, get where the author goes, what we're talking about. The law of Ten Commandments is not to be looked upon uh, as much from a prohibitory side as from a mercy side. Its prohibitions are the sure guarantee of happiness in obedience. Process that. How can this be? How can I have freedom and happiness if I'm prohibited and restricted? This is Satan's argument in heaven. God's law restricts, takes freedom, undermines happiness. We'll be really happy if we throw off the law. That is only how imposed law works. Design law, harmony with it always gives you liberty and freedom and happiness. Breaking it takes it away. So a parent who tries to educate a child who doesn't understand the laws of health yet and gives them a intermediary rule while they're growing up not to smoke. If the child obeys the law and doesn't smoke cigarettes, they actually retain more freedoms, don't they? But if they begin smoking, not only do they become addicted and they will have financial restraints because they're spending money on this, what happens to their health, their capacity to climb stairs, and all the other things you do in life as your lungs get damaged? You lose freedoms. Harmony with the law is where we have freedom. It's not restricting liberties and, 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 and happiness to live in harmony with God's design laws. It gives them health and happiness. Continue with the quote. As received in Christ, it works in us the purity of character that will bring joy 
to us through eternal ages. If we receive the law in Christ, it works in us purity of character? What? The law works purity of character? What does that mean? What kind of law? Well, if I get the right rules and I've checked my 28 fundamentals and I have the right... I'll get an email. Somebody's going to put it on a question. Well, Dr. Jennings, is it okay to do this on Sabbath? If I get that right list of what I'm allowed to do and don't do, is that what will make me pure? Just get the right list. To the obedient, it is a wall of protection. But beyond, but be, excuse me, to the obedient is a wall of protection. We behold in it the goodness of God, who by revealing to men the immutable principles of righteousness seek to shield them from the evils that result in transgression. Again, design law. A parent trying to teach the laws of health is simply trying to protect the child from the lies that their friends say, hey, you know what? You have freedom. It's your body. Put in anything you want. It won't hurt. Anybody trying to, trying to take your freedom, they're trying to keep you from having fun. Isn't that right? Or, it's your body, sleep with whoever you want. Anybody who says you shouldn't is just trying to take your, your fun from you, take your freedom. It's, it's healthier to just sleep around. It is not. It's harmful. It damages. These are the principles of love God has tried to communicate to us, but Satan has perverted it through through a, uh, this idea of imperial rule keeping. Yes. If you've had in your life any kind of addiction, whether it's alcohol or drugs or shopping or eating, if you've had any kind of addiction, you are you have to do it. You can't stop compulsion. The compulsion, yeah. but. You know, being with God, giving it to Him, and having Him to do it in you—that is freedom. He gives you, gives us the freedom to be able to do what in our heads we want to do. But in so you're talking about the power now. So the freedom comes from already living in harmony with the law. You're free from the addiction. You never took the substance in the first place. So you always remain free and you weren't enslaved by it. But people who are enslaved by it, who come to the Lord and give their heart to him and make the choice, then they receive the power to overcome it. Yeah, That's freedom. Yes, that's where the freedom is, right. Now notice these next words. Just to confirm that this author, we are in harmony with what this author says. We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. This is the context of this. You've How many times have I used this quote? The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstance that bring the sure result. Every act of transgression reacts upon the sinner, works in him a change of character, and makes it more easy for him to transgress again. By choosing to sin, men get themselves in legal trouble, and there's demerits put in a book in heaven, and they will be punished if they don't get a payment put to their account. No. By, by choosing to sin, men separate themselves from God, cut themselves off from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death. This is design law. It's how reality works. And then the law is an expression of God's idea. When we receive it in Christ, it becomes our idea, our way of thinking, our way of perceiving, our way of processing, our way of living. It lifts us above the power of the natural desires and tendencies above temptation that leads to sin. 
when you're really freed or you actually understand the law, there are certain things I've never been tempted with. I've never been tempted to jab a pencil in my eye. You laugh at that. There are certain psychotic patients that jab out their own eyes. Yeah. And you can go down the list. There are certain things some of you have never been tempted with. And if you look at the root of it, it's because somewhere you are so settled on that issue in God's law that it just isn't a temptation. It's your idea that that is actually off-putting to you. Your idea of what health and life and goodness is, that idea is off-putting. The areas that we violate God's law is when we have not understood it correctly and been tempted that there's no harm or might even be good in doing the violation. That's, that's where we go, whether it's through feelings or friends or just deceit. So this conflict in 1888 reveals another one of Satan's strategies, and we've gone through them many times in many places. And his strategy is to present too false or too incomplete and thereby leaving something out, create two uh, inadequate positions, and pit them against each other. And in this case, the law is the ceremonial law or, or the law is the moral law, and then have the two groups argue and then stir up negative and hostile feelings toward each other. Ellen White wrote later, first elected message is 233, the following. I am uh, asked concerning the law of Galatians. What law is the schoolmaster to bring us to Christ? I answer both the ceremonial and the moral code of Ten Commandments. But in this scripture, the, uh, the apostle is uh, referring especially to the moral law. But, but all law, all law was added to lead us to Christ and help us. That's the point. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph. God is, God is a God of love, and love is the overarching principle of his character and the foundation of his government. And because God wants us to love him in return, he has created us as moral creatures with moral freedom and freedom, uh, the freedom inherent in love. There's no question. You can't have love without freedom. This is well said. Well said. Uh, love can't exist without freedom. Trying to, and this alone, understanding this principle alone, should eviscerate all penal substitutionary theological tr- uh, teachings in our church. When you understand that's right, you cannot get love by threatening to kill people who won't love you, by inflicting punishment upon them in some judicial or punitive way. You can't get it. It always incites rebellion and drives people away. And that alone should say then something is wrong with our theological teachings that God and justice had to use his power to punish sinners. And design law brings us right back and realize that, no, God never does. What we just read, sin separates us from God, and God through Christ is working to eliminate sin in us to reconcile us back to him. Central to the idea of moral freedom is moral law. This is the next paragraph. Subatomic particles, ocean, waves, kangaroos, though following to some degree natural law, don't follow or need moral law. Only moral beings to which, uh, do, only moral beings do, which is why even in heaven God has a moral law for angels. Are they suggesting that the moral law is somehow on a different plane or type of law than what they call natural law here? Natural law would be the, and this is what I hear from the penal adherents. The people who like the punishing view of God and the penal legal theology will say, yes, God has natural laws, the laws that govern nature, the laws of health, the law of gravity, the laws of physics. Yes, but his moral law, those are rules that he has to enforce. You hear this all the time. I'm I'm hearing maybe a suggestion of that here. 
but it's fraudulent. It is true that moral beings live on a higher plane of existence and therefore the design laws of God take on a higher order of operation, but they are still design laws, how life is built to operate. An example, the law of respiration is a design law. Living beings breathe. They give out oxygen, they give back uh, give out carbon dioxide, they, they get back oxygen. This is part of God's design law built right into nature. However, rocks don't breathe. Stars don't ex- uh, give away carbon dioxide and receive back oxygen. They don't uh, uh, breathe as we do. Does that mean that the uh, law of gravity and the other um, laws of physics that govern nature are somehow a different type of law than the law of respiration or just, just, just a different manifestation of design law, manifestation of the principles? Living beings, did, did I lose you with that analogy? Yes. I did? Yes. Okay. So breathing, is it a rule you have to keep or is it just the way things are designed to function? <laughs> okay. The law of gravity, rule you have to keep or, or a, a, a design law on how things function. So both laws are laws on how things function, but rocks don't keep the law of respiration. Because they're on a lower order of creation than we are. So the same thing with the moral law. Dogs don't keep the moral law because they're on a lower order of creation than we are. But the moral law is still design law. It's how things are designed to function. And we have the higher ordered beings still live in harmony with it. So why is it wrong for a man or woman to commit adultery? Because it's a rule that if you break, an external authority must punish you. Or does the adulterer actually sear the conscience, harden the heart, warp the character, actually become untrustworthy, a liar and a cheat? That's who they become. They damage themselves in the process. Okay? There is action, and it's inherent. You can't, even if the adulterer is not caught, the adulterer is having serial affairs, his spouse doesn't know what's happening inside of them. They're living in increased fear, increased And if they can continue to do it without any conviction at all, that's not an evidence they're not being damaged. It's an evidence of serious damage. And so all the design law, all the, all the laws of God are design laws. Uh, here's a quote out of a 16 manuscript release uh, written in 1892. Every organ has its function, and our creator has pledged himself to keep our organs in a healthful condition if we obey the laws implanted in our nature. The laws governing the physical nature are as truly divine in their origin and character as the law of the Ten Commandments. Making an equation here between the moral law and the physical laws. Why is it that those who honor their parents live longer on the earth that the Lord has given them? Well, because God said to do it, it's a rule, and if you do it, then he looks down and makes sure you did it, and then he says, oh, seven, seven little um, gold stars next to them, and you can trade those gold stars for, for miraculous benefits in your life, and it begins meeting out power from heaven to give you little blessings in your life that you wouldn't have gotten had you not honored them. Well, we, we could call it pixie dust. Is that how it works? Or your relationship with your parents is a prime relationship that becomes a template for future relationships. And when you have conflict with your very parents, you often have struggle, struggles trusting 
uh, other people through life. And if you remain in conflict with your parents, then you can have resentment and bitterness and anger and hostility. And then you can uh, have significant activation of your inflammatory cascades in your body, your amygdala and stress, and stress pathway, pathways. And people who have had these types of childhoods that come out of trauma and they have ongoing unresolved traumatic issues, they actually have more stress in their bodies and they die younger. Those who have a healthier relationship with their parents have healthier relationships with others. They're more forgiving. They're less conflictual. But, uh, but that doesn't mean that you are predetermined to have that outcome. Because through God's grace, you can experience healing of your mind and not carry forward resentment and bitterness and hostility, even if you were mistreated. By, by what? In your heart and mind, forgiving. So how does a person honor a parent who maintains untrustworthiness and abuse and exploitation and so forth. How do you honor that parent? Honoring them does not mean you continue to expose yourself to injury. Honoring them means honoring them. And if they are untrustworthy, you honor their decision to be who they are and recognize them for what they are. And you set healthy boundaries. And you forgive them so you don't carry bitterness and hostility around in your heart, but you don't expose yourself to them because they're untrustworthy. I watched this in my own life. My parents took in my grandparents, my mom's father and mother and stepfather, and took care of them when they couldn't. And I was a young child, um, and I watched their example of honoring their parents. And it was an example to me of forgiving the bitterness and the 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 what they had done to my mom. And my father said, I will help you take care of your parents. They're not my parents, but they're your parents. So I'm going to help you. And it was an incredible example of love when it wasn't always pleasant and easy to love. And so my parents gave me an incredible example so sometimes, even when it's difficult to honor your parents, your children are watching. Mm. So thank you for that. And then this quote, it says, Men and women cannot violate natural law by indulging in depraved appetites and lustful passions and not violate the law of God. Therefore, he has permitted the light of health reform to shine upon us that we may see our sin in violating the laws which he has established in our being. Laws right there. What kind of laws are the laws of health? Design laws, natural laws, right? Okay. And, and these laws are to teach us something about sin. Remember the Bible says sin is breaking a list of rules. No, sin is, trans, sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness. Think that through lawlessness. What does lawlessness mean? Without the law. Okay. Without, so if you are lawless... When it comes to the laws of health, you're not living in harmony with the laws of health, so you're out of harmony, you're lawless, or without the law, what are you doing? You're destroying yourself, that's right. You can't have health while violating the laws of health. You can't have it. It's not possible. You can't have spiritual health, health of heart, mind, relational health, mental health, while violating the laws upon which those aspects of God's reality are constructed to operate. 
We were created in Adam as living temples, living temples, the moral law. The moral law is not understood on stone. The moral law is the law of love. It is a living law, and it is to be written into the being as the code of conduct, the the motives of action. And Adam was created to be the repository where God's living law was to be lived out in how he governed the planet and interacted with all the other beings. It's a living law. And we are God's temple. In the New Covenant, he writes his law where? And it is a living law to be written into us. To how we tr- And this is the plan of salvation. Jesus became the second Adam and put the law back into the spirit temple. Destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. He wasn't talking a building. He was talking the place where the law operates and functions. The law does not operate and function in inanimate material. Not the, not the principles of love like that. It was designed as the, and we were created as the, the um, pinnacle of creation, the highest example of God's law of love. Yes, you can see, as we've described, the law of respiration and other things in lower life, but the highest example, the pinnacle, human beings in God's image. And Jesus became the second Adam, and all of us who unite with him receive from him. He is the vine, we're the branches, we receive from him the new motives and principles. Continuing on, all our enjoyment or suffering may be traced to obedience or transgression of natural law. 70% of our enjoyment and suffering may be, no, all of our enjoyment and suffering may be traced to obedience or transgression of natural law. It's reality. Now, it doesn't mean you necessarily transgressed it, if somebody gets mugged by somebody, will it under and they get broken bones and like the the person that the good Samaritan found beaten beside the road? Do you think being beaten and robbed and left naked undermined his happiness and health? Doesn't mean he, but was it a violation of God's law to do that? Yes. Yeah. So so and you can trace right back to his suffering. His suffering happened because of a violation of God. Didn't mean he violated the law. It's important to recognize that. People who lived near Three Mile Island and drank water with uh, radiation poisoning or the lead lead poisoning in Michigan, you all heard on the news, and then they had all this brain developmental problem and cognitive problems, their happiness and health was undermined. Because why? Laws of health were violated. They didn't violate them knowingly, willfully, but they were still violated. You can trace it right back. He proclaims his law so distinctly and makes it so prominent that it is like a city set on a hill. All accountable beings can understand if they will. They can understand it if they will. Idiots will not be responsible. (laughs) She says that. To make plain natural law and urge the obedience of it is the work that accompanies the third angel's message to prepare a people for the coming of the Lord. Design law, guys, this is the third angel's message, and this is in 1888 what was brought to our church and what the leadership rejected and why the Holy Spirit was shut away and why the latter rain didn't come and why we've been wandering in the wilderness. This is the message that empowers 
and frees people to come out of Babylon, that fallen system of imperial rules with imperial dictators who must punish sin. Understand what Romanism is. Romanism is not about having the, just a, a different day of week you worship on or a different way of doing communion or a different way of doing baptism. All oh, that's kind of irrelevant, honestly. Romanism is authoritarianism. Romanism is a papal head that makes up canonical law and that law becomes imperialistically imposed upon people and you don't have a mind to be a priesthood of a believer. You must accept the ex-cathedra rulings of of the Roman leader and if you don't, you're a heretic and you will be punished for it. Well, thank God we don't have that in our church. Instead, we have a general conference committee. And we have compliance committees, and we have people that will police your thoughts and make sure that you comply with the rules voted. This is um, third testimony 161, three testimony 161. All right, move on to Monday. Why does God tell them again and again, again and again and again, that their success is dependent upon their obedience to the law? Says in the second paragraph, it says, even in the most cursory reading of the book of Deuteronomy shows how crucial obedience to the law was for the nation of Israel. In real sense, it was the uh, the people's covenant obligation. God had done so much uh, for them and would continue to do so much for them, things that they couldn't do for themselves and that they did not deserve to to begin with, which is what grace is, God giving us what we don't deserve. And what he asked in response was, well, obedience to his law. That's what the lesson said. A couple of things to unpack here for us. Um, the uh, reason for the obedience over and over again, it's very simple when you understand design law. It's what we just went through. When you understand design law, if you want health and happiness, you live in harmony with the laws that health and happiness are built upon. It's very straightforward. There's no, there's no mysticism here, no sense of coercion or pressure. What about the um, covenant obligation mentioned in the lesson? Is marriage a covenant obligation? Yes or no? Yes. Yes. Do marriages succeed as God designed them to succeed when the covenant of marriage is approached through obligation? No. What makes the covenant of marriage work as God designed it to work? Love and trust. You can love somebody who's untrustworthy and that marriage doesn't work. It's love and trust. Love and trust. That's what... Pardon? Two healthy individuals. Yeah, healthy relationships require healthy people. That's right. That's exactly right. So, what about this covenant relationship with God then? How does that work? We enter into an agreement with God. What's the agreement we enter into? In the penal view, we agree that we are under the condemnation and death sentence and that we deserve death and that Jesus came and all our sins are put on Jesus and he paid the price when the Father killed him at the cross and then if we accept his payment, it's put on our registry in heaven and God declares us to be righteous even though we're not and we agree to that whole legal accounting mechanism. Here's what the real covenant is. We agree with God that we are sinners, sick with a condition that we didn't choose and we cannot fix. We agree that God is not under some external obligation to fix it for us. But 
because he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He chose to fix it for us through Jesus. And we agree that Jesus is the remedy for the condition. And we agree that if we trust him, he will restore his design law in us, right? His law in our hearts and minds and take away our fear and replace selfishness with altruism and love. Our responsibility then is to follow where he leads and choose to apply to our lives what he has revealed us to do. Not, and, and this is what we do because we come to understand it's our agreement. We agree. You agree. We trust you. Any questions about that? All right, I'm moving on because i got some other stuff I want to get to. All righty. Um, this idea in the lesson that grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. That's, that's their words. God giving us what we don't deserve. This way of expressing the idea, there is a kernel of truth here that I will unpack, but it is expressed here extremely poorly that lends itself to gross misunderstanding. Such that, let's look at the definition again. God, grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. If that's what it is, then does that mean when Satan murdered Jesus at the cross, giving Jesus what he didn't deserve, Satan was giving Jesus grace? Giving him what he didn't deserve, that's grace. Is that what grace is, really? You see, that's a bad definition, isn't it? Yes. Satan didn't kill Christ. Who did? He gave up his life. So Jesus committed suicide? No. But he surrendered. Yeah, so he so he didn't stop what was being done to him, but who was the actor? If they if if they didn't act against him, would he have climbed up on the cross and nailed himself up there? Where he gave his life was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He did surrender his life in Gethsemane, that's right. He gave it freely, and he would have died there, that's correct. At the cross, though, who killed him? In Desire of Ages, Ellen White writes that uh, at the cross, Satan revealed himself as a murderer in taking the life of Christ. And he uprooted himself from the sympathy of heavenly beings at that point. And from that point forward, there was no, there was no sympathy left for him amongst any of the angels. So there is a difference, and many people get confused on this, um, between Christ voluntarily, no one can take my life, I lay it down freely, so they could not take it from him without his consent to allow it. You're 100% correct. But his consent to allow it isn't the same thing as him killing himself. You could think of a strong man who has the power to stop a child, has a knife, but he doesn't take an action to stop the child, and this child stabs him to death. Did the man kill himself? No, but he didn't stop what was happening to him. didn't use his power to take the liberty or freedom of those. It's quite profound that he didn't. It goes right to some of the questions people deal with in society today. One of the things that God gives us is true freedom. True, real, legitimate freedom. So much freedom that he won't even stop us from taking his own life from him. Think, think that through. God, Jesus did not stop us from taking his life. The law of this world is the place that you are justified in using force on other people is in self-defense. 
Self-defense is justifiable use of force. Even in self-defense, Jesus wouldn't use force. When Peter did, he told him to put the sword up. It's very profound. And there's a reason for that. Love cannot exist without freedom. If God begins to use force to stop or take our liberties from us, then the universe doesn't have love as its basis operation anymore. And God has a character other than what he has said he is. And Satan becomes validated in his allegations that God's a rule enforcer. So it's very, very, very interesting. But you're exactly right. He did not um, use power to stop them. So back to this question, uh, God giving us what we don't deserve. In any context, that's a bad definition. You can give somebody what a child gets molested. They didn't deserve it. Is that an act of grace? They got something they didn't deserve. It's a bad definition. And then you have another definition of Jesus as a child grew in wisdom and stature and in... And you know the, the English word there is favor. You know the Greek word? It's the exact Greek word for grace. He grew in wisdom and stature and grace with God and man. Well, did Jesus deserve grace? Yes. Well, then it can't mean giving you something you don't deserve. (laughs) On either side of the coin, it's a bad definition. It's a very bad definition. And so, but I want to unpack the the kernel of truth in there. And, And the kernel of truth is that the idea of merit. Merit is what you deserve through your work and what you've earned. So if you worked eight hours at a job for a certain amount of pay and you get your paycheck, your paycheck is meritorious. You merited it. You've earned it. It's yours. You have a right to that paycheck. Okay. In that context, then what God has done for us through his grace is not what we have merited. It's not what we have earned. It's not what we have worked for. It's not what we're owed. So that's, that's absolutely true. Unmerited favor is when you receive something you didn't earn and didn't merit and don't have a right to claim as being owed to you. Grace in that sense is not our right to claim. It's not owed to us by God. If someone gave you a glass of water, you were dying from thirst out in the desert, and somebody gave you this glass of water, you didn't buy it, you didn't earn it, it wasn't owned, it was a gift. You could say that water was unmerited favor to you. The water given was unmerited favor. It was given to you freely, but the water is actually still water. The method of giving it to you is separate from the actual gift that was given. The gift was the water. The method of giving it freely is not the gift. Everybody with me or did I lose you? Okay. This idea that God's grace is not ours because it's given freely focuses off of the object, the noun, the grace, onto the method, the verb, the action. He gave it freely. Yes, he did. Grace is giving you something you don't deserve, the act of giving. I'm going to suggest to you grace is actually something more substantive than the act of giving freely. 
So let's read some Bible verses, see if we can't see what the Bible tells us about this objective grace. Yes, Wendell. But also grace is an adjective more than it is a noun. It, it talks about God. It tells us about who God is. So let's go through some Bible texts and see if we can unpack those. Psalms 84.11, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. The Lord God is a sun, S-U-N, and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. Psalms 84.11. Who is the S-U-N of righteousness that comes with healing in his wings? The son of righteousness will rise with healings in his way. Is that referring to an actual being? That's Jesus. The Lord is a son. Who is the shield that shields us from all the assaults of the devil? Jesus is our shield. Uh, who And the Lord will give us grace and glory. God so loved the world that he gave us something. What did he give us? He gave us Jesus. Is it possible that the grace of God is Jesus and the glory of God is Jesus? Well, let's keep going with some texts. This is a Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Keep in mind this idea of grace being an object. This is a Hebrews uh, one, one through three, and, and the glory being an object. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets and many times in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Is Jesus God's glory revealed and poured out? Lived out? What about his grace? It didn't say grace in this text, but what about his grace? Well, this is Ephesians 4, 7. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Hmm. John 1, 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and, the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus, is Jesus the, live, the living, is Jesus the living grace and truth and glory of God? What is, what is the glory and truth and grace of God? How do you understand it? Did Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life? Is that just an abstract construct or, or is there something more objective about truth in the body and living being of Jesus Christ? What about the glory of God? Is it just an abstract or is there something more objective about that? What about the grace of God? Is there something more objective about that in the living person of Jesus? Continue on, another quote. John 1, 16 and 17. Just two verses down from where we just read. The word became flesh and so forth. It says, the... From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Who is the source of this grace? Who is the source of this truth? Is Jesus separate from the truth and the grace? 
Or is Jesus the source of the truth and the grace? This is Romans 6.4. Just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may, uh, we may uh, live a new life. Think that through. He was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. Through the glory of the Father. The glory of the Father raised him from the dead. What is God's glory? His character, okay. And where do we find the manifestation of God's character most fully expressed? We just read it there that, that the fullness of God was in the Son, okay? Jesus is the living reality. And what do we call a transcript of God's character? The law. So Jesus fully lived out the law, which is a living law. The law of love, God's character expressed in the living protocols of life, the principles of giving. So God's glory diffusing out from himself, sustaining all the universe, and Jesus was raised by his glory because Jesus restored the perfect character of God, the perfect law of God, back into the humanity he assumed, he assumed which is glorious to God and is his glory. It's really cool. How about this one, Colossians 1.11? May you be strong in all the strength that comes from his glorious power. His glorious power. What is the power? What makes, what makes you strong? Is the power, remember Paul said, what was the power? The gospel. What's the gospel? The good news. The good news about what? God's law. Yes, about God's law, which is about his character. The good news about God, the eternal good news. What's the first angel's message? The gospel, the eternal good news, the eternal gospel. You see what we're doing here? I've got a few more to go through. Hopefully you're, you're walking with me here. What we're doing with these Bible texts is we are, it's like puzzle pieces. We're taking a bunch of puzzle pieces and we're showing how they all link together to show the same truth about God, all the various parts of the one central theme. How about this one? The heavens declare the glory of God. How do they do that? What is God's glory? Character. It's character, which is expressed in his laws. And we read earlier in those Ellen White quotes that the law, the natural laws and the moral laws are alike the same. Okay, So we see in nature the constancy, the predictability, the reliability, the expression of other-centered love, uh, the principles of God's character built into nature. It reveals his character, his glory. Psalms 31.19, how great is your goodness? Now, this is a cool one. Listen to this one carefully. How great is your goodness, talking about God, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you bestow in the sight of men on those who take refuge in you. God's goodness, his character of love, his grace, truth, stored up for those who fear him. Does this remind you of any texts for our day, our time? Fear God and give glory to him. What's stored up for those who fear God? His goodness is stored up. To be poured out on those, and that fear is awe, revere, admire, respect. He pours his goodness into our hearts. It's stored up for those. To, be, to bestow on us in the sight of men. 
if we take refuge in him. Where we are in time, the three angels' message, he's wanting the people to rise up and be those lights that we take refuge in Christ. We admire and, 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 and all the creator, his design laws, and he pours his goodness into us. Jesus prayed this, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have given them the glory that you gave me. That they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me. May they be brought into complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And then back to that text we started with then, after all of these. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. Ephesians 2, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourself, it's a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I'm going to suggest to you Christ is the manifestation of grace. It's real, it's objective, it's, it's, it's an actual working out of God's principles in the human species and he is gifted to us when i heard the sun shield i immediately thought of the pillar of cloud with the israelites oh that's another good one yeah it was a light at night it was a shield from the desert heat during the day all right let's go let's let's hit a couple quick points before we finish our lesson for today the tuesday's lesson talks about the law and uh it talks about the law basically being protective and so forth um and it, that the, if they obey the law of God, it protects you from evil, what it talks about. I want to, to, to really unpack where you can have 100% protection and where you don't. Okay? There is a kind of evil that if, you're, if you live God's law, you are always protected from, always, 100%. But the question is, what kind of evil does it protect us from? Does the law, living in harmony with God's law, protect people from physical illness? Consider Job. No, it doesn't. Does living in harmony with God's law, with absolute protection we're talking about, protect people from being murdered, considered Uriah? Does it protect people from natural disasters? Does it protect people from rejection, considered Jesus himself? No. What does the law protect us from if you live in harmony with it? It protects us from having our characters, minds, and hearts corrupted by sin and controlled by fear and selfishness. That's what it protects us from. Other people can do us harm in this world of sin. They can perpetrate evil upon us. We can suffer from sickness and natural disasters. Evil in this world can harm us emotionally and mentally and physically. We can be tempted spiritually, but if we stay in harmony with God's laws, our minds and hearts are not corrupted. Look at Joseph and all the evil that was done around him and to him, but his heart and mind was not. He was protected. So God's law does not protect us from being attacked by evil forces. It protects us from being corrupted by evil. Many Christians get disillusioned and discouraged because they don't understand that. I paid my tithe, but our house got foreclosed on. 
Well, I, I ate a vegetarian diet, but I got cancer. And they have this idea that if you do the right stuff, then you're protected from bad stuff in the world. No, you're protected from having your characters corrupted. Okay, that's one point I wanted to make. And is there one other, or is that the biggest one I wanted to make? Yeah, I think we'll just stop with that. We could go all day on Wednesday and Thursday, but I, I'm not going to do that. Let's go ahead and close with prayer, and then we'll go to our Q&A time. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for you as our creator, the builder of all reality, the sustainer of all things that are good, and, and the conduit and avenue of bringing your grace and your glory and your love and your truth back into humanity. And we ask now that your spirit will take the victories that you've achieved, Jesus, and reproduce them in us, enlighten our minds, transform our hearts, enable us to be uh, your glorious witnesses here on this earth. Open the avenues for the message to go forward. Pour out your spirit upon the, the hearts and minds of the people prepared to receive it so that the final message can lighten the world and you can come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.